Thank you so much again for the opportunity to be here with you and to be sharing with you these lessons about divine impassibility. Uh, we have covered two lessons so far. We began with impassibility and the scriptures, the word of God, talking about different uh, kinds of passages, different sets of passages in the scriptures that inform us about the doctrine of divine impassibility. And then we drew from those passages certain principles of interpretation. How should we understand God's word in light of these passages? And then we spent our second lesson talking about impassibility and humanity because we wanted to understand ourselves, we wanted to understand human nature so that we can contrast ourselves with God, so to speak, or understand how we take love and put it on on humans or put it on God and understand, okay, given what man is, then love and man is one thing. And given what God is or who God is, love and God is, is in many ways something else. It's different according to who and what God is. And to help you follow along in my lessons, I've prepared a handout that I think is being distributed. If you don't have a copy, it would be useful for you. Please feel free to raise your hand if you don't have a copy of that handout and it can be given to you. And just to remind you, in that handout, I've put the scripture verses that I'll be referencing, and they're in the handout in the order that I reference them in my lesson. So as we move through, you'll see each, pa- each passage come up uh, along the way. That's the way that the handout is structured. And just to refresh, how did we devi- uh, define divine impassibility? I gave a, a definition to you that's at the top of the first page of your outline. And so we introduced everything by saying that God is not acted upon and cannot be acted upon by anything, either from within himself or outside of himself. And to understand that, once again, we looked at the scriptures and we looked at human nature. And we've talked about uh, affections and passions, defining those as well as motions uh, to or away from something that we perceive as good or bad, like a, like a buffet of food. We, we see some foods and we think it's good and we go towards it. We see some things we think they're bad, we stay away from them. And those are affections and passions. We move towards or away from the things that we think are good or bad, which means that outside of us, all sorts of objects are changing us. We're encountering them, and then we change in, in relation to uh, those things around us. We're constantly changing. And so that leads us to a question, a question such as this. If God is described in the language of our affections and passions, if God is described in this language of, of change, evaluation, response, and reaction, and if the Bible plainly tells us that God is not a man nor a son of man, that God is not like us, then how do we understand those passages and what do they teach us and what do they say to us? And so what we're going to do in this lesson is look at some of the elemental and foundational elements, excuse me, of the doctrine of God in order to gain a better understanding of how things like love and mercy and anger apply to God and are in God because God is not a man or not a human. So how can we understand such things? And so what we're going to do, if you look at your outline, is we're going to first cover five foundational or fundamental elements of the doctrine of God. You can see one, two, three, four, five. To save room on my outline, I put them all together in a line like that. Otherwise, it would have been just single words, if you understand. So that's why it's put that way. But those are five individual points, simple, infinite, eternal, immutable, and impassable. And then we'll move on after that to look at uh, three affections, love, mercy, and anger, And then we'll conclude with two recommendations for how to read the scriptures when we come across this kind of language. 
So we're beginning with five foundational or fundamental aspects of the doctrine of God. And, and once again, this is where you instantly dive into the deep end of the pool because we are, we are quickly encountering mystery, not something that's intentionally hidden from us, but something that transcends our understanding. And we're not going to agonize over that mystery, but adore it. We will not uh, run away from it, but rather worship our God. And so we'll begin with the first of those five foundational elements, and that is that God is simple. God is simple. Sometimes you hear about divine simplicity, the simplicity of God. God is simple. Now, what does that mean? It, it doesn't mean that God is uh, of low intelligence or something like that. Oh, he, you know, that's a very simple person we might use. It's somewhat older language. It, this was much more difficult to teach in Spanish, be, Spanish because if you say in Spanish, Dios es simple, it sounds very bad. It's, it's in many ways an insult. But in, in English, we can do it. We can say that God is simple, and people do not interpret that as God being of low intelligence or poor intelligence. That's not what we're saying. What are we saying? Well, to use a, a helpful phrase from James Dolezal, what we're saying is that nothing not God accounts for God being God. Nothing not God accounts for God being God. God is that he is. I am that I am. There's nothing else other than God that accounts for God being God. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. We're asserting it. Let's explain it in more detail. And this is where we come back to Exodus 3.14, which I mentioned yesterday is the most important passage for understanding these things. And that's where God reveals his name to Moses. I am that I am. I am that I am. We get the name Jehovah or Yahweh from this name, Jehovah or Yahweh. And God expresses himself. He declares his name in a way that that references being. I am that I am. His name has something to do with being, and many of the names of God have to do with being. And so we draw from that, we realize that God's names get at the ideas of being and existence. God is that he is. There's nothing else behind God or above God that is causing God to be or accounting for his existence. In other words, nothing not God accounts for God being God. I exist because I have been called into existence along with all other creation. I exist because God made me. The children's catechism, who made you? God made me. That's true. That's very true. And so there, is, there are so many causes, human and divine causes, that stand behind me being here today. There's so many things that account for me being me and existing in this world that have nothing to do with me. I did not cause myself. I'm not causing myself, etc. But God, there's nothing not God that accounts for God being God. Now, why would we move from that, I am that I am, to say something like, God is simple, how do you get to the phrase, God is simple, from those truths? And the connection is in causes or causation. One thing causing another thing. Because any time that you put two things together, any time that you compose, you put two things together, you combine two things, you are causing a union. In other words, anything that is composite, anything that is put together, has been caused. Something accounts for the union of those two parts. All combinations, all compositions are caused because you can, you can reduce those things into more simple or elemental components 
And then they being put together account for the composition. They must be put together. All things that are combined or composite are caused. And so if God is that he is, if nothing else other than God accounts for him being God, then God cannot be put together. He cannot have parts. And so therefore we say that God is simple. He is non-composite. He's not put together of constituent pieces. If that were the case, some cause would have caused those pieces to come together, in which case what we're calling God wouldn't be God, but the thing that caused what we call God to be God would be God, if you can follow all those references in that statement. If God is put together, something put him together, and that something would be God. But if God is, I am that I am, if nothing accounts for his existence other than God himself, then God is simple. He's not put together. He's not composite. He is, I am that I am. So there are no parts in God. James Dolezal's book is entitled God Without Parts. God Without Parts. Our confession says that God is without parts. That is the doctrine of divine simplicity. Simplicity. He is simple. You cannot reduce him into anything more simple than what he already is. If you take a, a, a Lego structure, you can reduce it down to its individual pieces. And then you have simplified it down to its pieces. Well, you cannot take God apart and simplify him or reduce him down. He is simple. Absolutely and perfectly so. And so that's what we mean when we say that God is simple. And we, we draw that from the scriptures based on the divine names, especially Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. And there are, there are so many implications and connections that flow out from the doctrine of divine simplicity. And people far more prepared and, and um, knowledgeable about this than myself could probably give you lecture upon lecture upon lecture for months and months about how simplicity just keeps impacting everything about God and our knowledge of him. But we're going to, we only have so much time because we're finite creatures. And so we cannot go through everything that this impacts, but you have to realize how foundational, how elemental, how fundamental this doctrine is that God is simple and non-composite, not combined or composed. Because this means that God cannot be more than he is. You can't add to God. This means that God cannot be less than he is. If God is simple, not composed of anything, if you add to him, well, you have to add creature to God because God is all that he is. You cannot add more God to God. God's simple. He, he is all that he is. You can't subtract from a simple God or he ceases to be. He, he, he either is or he is not. There are no parts you can add or subtract from God. And so the way that many theologians have expressed this is to say that God is pure act. God is pure act. And here's what they mean by that. When they say that God is pure act, they're saying that God is all that he is, can't be any more, can't be any less. Because we have, as creatures, potential or potentiality. I can become more than I am now. I can become less than I am now. So I have all this potentiality. And when my potentiality is changed in one way or another, I am therefore actualized in one way or another. My potential has become actual. 
you sometimes in, in physics classes you talk about potential energy and actual or kinetic energy. Uh, something has a, the potential to fall, and when it falls, that energy is activated, if I can remember my basic physics correctly, which I might not be remembering that correctly. But you understand that as creatures, we can be changed. We have potential. And when we are changed, that change is actualized. Something about us is changed. And so if God is pure act... He cannot be actualized in any way. He is already all that he is perfectly and infinitely. So you cannot actualize God more or less. You cannot, in other words, change him at all because he is simple. He is pure act. We become what we were not. I can get stronger. I can get weaker. I can be nicer. I can be meaner. I can get smarter. I can get dumber. Uh, all sorts of things. I can be actualized in all sorts of positive and negative ways. I have the potentiality to be actualized constantly, and that's what's happening with the world around me, changing me, uh, and these affections and passions that I undergo bodily and uh, spiritually. But God is I am that I am, pure, simple being, pure, simple act. So that's a very simple explanation and uh, delivery to you of the doctrine of divine simplicity. That God is simple. He is all that he is. I am that I am. Nothing accounts for God being God but God. You cannot add to him without adding creature to him. You cannot subtract from him without the divine being ceasing to be, which, again, it's like dividing by zero just doesn't work. Everything breaks when you try to do that. It makes no sense. We are creatures who have potential to be actualized further one way or another. God is pure act because he is simple and he cannot be more or less than he is or else he is not God. Secondly then, God is simple. Secondly, God is infinite. Infinite, the infinity of God. God may be simple, but that's not because God is confined or small or something. You know, in our human analogies, like a Lego set, you think about a big Lego set, and then you put it into small pieces. And so if we say God is, is simple, it, in, our, in our minds we might start to think, okay, so then God is, is sort of small or confined or something like that, which is certainly not true because his being is infinite, infinite. He is all that he is infinitely. I am that I am infinitely so. And this goes along with simplicity in that you cannot add to infinity you cannot subtract from infinity. If God is infinite and simple, you can't add to him unless he's finite. In order to be able to add to God, he would have to be finite. In order to subtract from God, he would have to be finite. And you can't add to God without making him a composite being, a being composed of parts. But God is infinite. You cannot do that to him. And so as a result, if you did add to God, he would, it would either have to be creature adding to God or creator adding to God. God cannot add to himself. He cannot somehow make have more God being that he's adding to himself. That doesn't make sense. And so also the creature cannot be added to him. The being of a creature could never be mixed or composed with God. Now, you may ask a question, well, what about our Lord Jesus Christ and the divine nature and the human nature? Well, the hypostatic union, the union of the two natures in the one person, again, is a mystery. However, in that mystery, the divine nature never becomes human. The human nature never becomes divine. 
the divine nature acts according to the divine nature. The human nature acts according to the human nature. That is, <clears throat> the, doc- the doctrine of Christ the mediator is not something that we're going to get into detail uh, a lot in these series, in, this, in these lectures, excuse me, because we don't have the time that we might want otherwise to speak of it. However, I will give you all of the tools that you need to understand it because we've gone through human nature. Jesus Christ had a tr- has a true human nature. And so everything we talked about yesterday in terms of impassibility and humanity, Jesus as a man has passions and affections. He has a perfect mind and he has a perfect will. And so there's no sin in Jesus' affections. His love is perfect human love. His anger is perfect human anger as when he cleansed the temple and things like that. But they're, they're real. And Hebrew says we have a high priest who can sympathize, who can undergo with the people whom he represents. And that's Jesus according to his human nature. Jesus also has a divine nature, and that's what we're describing right now. Those two natures are united in one person, which is a mystery, but we do know that it's not a mystery that the divine nature never becomes human, and the human nature never becomes divine, which, in other words, as our confession says, that this union took place without composition in chapter 8 of our confession. And so right now, as I'm talking about God being simple and infinite, you can't add to him, you can't subtract from him, the incarnation of Jesus does not in any way violate these principles. It, it comports or it, it matches them. It goes along perfectly with them in every way. And this is a good place to bring that up, even though it wasn't in my notes. So God is simple and God is infinite. There's, no, there's nothing finite about God. You cannot trap him. You cannot contain him. You cannot add to him or subtract from him. He's infinite. Thirdly, God is eternal. God is eternal. In order to add anything to God or subtract anything from him, not only would you have to mix creaturely being with God, but you would also have to place God within time. You'd have to to place him within time in a finite way. You'd have to, to keep God in time in some way. Because to change God which is what adding to him would bring about, you'd have to do this. Time is the measurement of motion between states of being. Time is the measurement of motion between states of being. Another helpful definition from James Dolezal. Time is a measurement of motion. My, my watch has, a, has hands that go around in motion, and as it goes around in a certain motion, I can therefore measure time, just like this, the orbit of celestial bodies, and, well, that sounds strange, but planets and things like that. We can use the orbit, the, the uh, circumnavigation, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the way the planets go around the sun, we can use that because it's a consistent motion and we can measure time. Time is a measurement of motion. My watch does this. God has given us in Genesis 1 the the greater light and the lesser light for the regulation of days and seasons and things like that. So time is a measurement of motion. And so if God is eternal, if God is not in time, is not limited by time, then there's no motion. There can be no succession in God. God cannot be moved from one thing to another thing. He cannot move from one state of being to another state of being because time is the measurement of motion and God is not limited by time. He's not stuck in time like we are. Psalm 90 verse 2. 
before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The psalmist is saying, outside of creation, outside of time, you are God. And, and uses the language of time because we're stuck in it, before, <laughs> before time, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You, there's a, a break in understanding there because before time, what, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, it's really outside of time. God is outside of time, and the psalmist is praising him and, and worshiping God because of this, Psalm 90, verse 2. Also, Psalm, or Isaiah 57, verse 15, describes God as one who dwells in eternity. He, does, he is not in the succession of moments that we know as, as time. He's not limited in time. He is eternal. He transcends time. And as we said yesterday, Solomon knew that God was not contained in the temple, but truly manifested in the temple. And so also God is truly at work in time as his decree unfolds, and yet he's not trapped in time as though succession and mutation were possible in God. So God is simple. He's infinite. He's eternal, which leads us to the fourth point. God is immutable. Immutable. Mutation is change. God is immutable. Really, immutable. You cannot mutate God. You cannot cause any change to come about in God. He cannot be changed in any way, shape, or form. And by this point, we've actually already proved this, this statement. Because God is simple. He is all that he is. He can't be any more or any less. Anything added to him would be creaturely. Anything taken from him would mean that God doesn't exist. God is infinite. To change him, you'd have to limit his being in perfection. Any change would be for the better or for the worse. If God has changed for the better, he was not God. If God can be changed for the worse, he is not God. God is simple, infinite. He's eternal. He doesn't dwell in time in succession of motion and the measurement of movement and states of being. He does not change and cannot be changed. James 1.17, the Father, there's no variation or turning due to change in him. No variation, no mutation, no variation whatsoever due to change. He always is who he is. The way that the older writers would say this is God is always like unto himself. <laughs> He's always the same, basically. He's always like unto himself, though. He is always the same according to who he is. Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, change not. I, the Lord, change not. Which leads us to the fifth point. God is impassable. Divine impassibility. You see how impassibility rests on so many other supporting doctrines behind it. It's deep within the doctrine of God as we explain the doctrine of God because there are all sorts of um, presuppositions or foundational statements and teachings that come before and prepare us and lead us and necessitate, make it necessary, that we declare that God is impassable. So we come back to our definition from the top of the first page. God is not acted upon and cannot be acted upon by anything either from within himself or outside of himself. Why do we say that? Because God is simple, God is infinite, God is eternal, God is immutable. 
And now we realize that impassibility is really just a subset of immutability. Impassibility is one particular application of immutability. Because God cannot change in any way, shape, or form, he cannot be acted upon by anything that might change him. And we are talking especially with regard to affections and passions. And if affections and passions are others changing us, working upon us, or even us upon ourselves, and if such things are impossible to apply to God, then God is impassable. Because of who he is, he cannot be provoked to wrath. He cannot be grieved. He cannot be made sorry. He cannot be made to love you. So then we start to ask, okay, well then, in what sense does God have love and wrath and such? And now we can answer those questions because we've looked at the human nature and we've looked at the divine nature and so we can put love on man and love on God according to who and what they are. And the answer is is something that we've said previously yesterday, that what is in us, an affection brought about by something outside of us, is in God a perfection, an aspect of the perfection of his infinite and simple being. He is what he is, he is that he is, in and of himself. And so what is in God is God, simply and infinitely. And so if something is in God, it is not in him because something brought it about in him from the outside, nor something that he conjured up from the inside because he's already all that he is, perfectly and infinitely, but rather it is God. Whatever is in God is God. And so that's the way in which we can move forward to look about these things or to look at these things. What is in us, an unstable affection, is in God a perfect perfection, to be a little bit redundant. You see, the way to handle this is to take love and mercy and anger and apply them to humanity according to what humanity is and apply it to deity or divinity according to what God is. So think about love and mercy and anger. We're going to get to those things, but start to think about them now. In man, love is a passion. Love is an affection, a state of being brought about by an outside object. If there's nothing to love, then we're not really in a state of loving, unless we're thinking about an object, in which case there's still some object, even if it's in our minds, that is bringing about love in us. And when the object goes away, so also the affection goes away. In God, God does not become loving. He does not fall in love, but he is love. He is love. And therefore, by virtue of his simplicity and his infinity and his eternity and his immutability, God's love is simple. God's love is pure. God's love is infinite. God's love is eternal. God's love is immutable. And when I see that that's what God's love is like, I see how vastly different it is from your love and my love. In other words, creature love. Because our love depends on those objects. It rises and falls with those objects. It can be provoked. It can be extinguished. All these things. But love is what God is. And so it's therefore infinite, eternal, and immutable. And so therefore we call it impassable. It's love without passion. Love without affection. And that makes God's love shine all the brighter. At first, when we start to say, this is what love is and God's not like that, it's very easy to think, okay, well then, 
God doesn't have love? Is that what you're saying? But when we start to scrub it of its creaturely imperfection, we see the beauty and the majesty of the perfection of God's love. We see how much more loving God is than any of us. Even those in whom the Lord has worked mightily to make them you know, wonderful creatures that show forth his love, even them, even at the best of human creaturely love, it's infinitely, it doesn't compare at all with God's love and the infinite perfection of that love. Think about it like this. We, we creatures acquire qualities. We acquire qualities. We can, this is just saying we can become what we were not. So, for example, this wall. I can paint the wall white. I can paint the wall red. I can paint the wall blue. And now the wall acquires the quality of redness or blueness or whiteness. Whatever color I want to paint on it, that wall has just become a blue wall or a red wall or a white wall or a yellow wall. Or I don't... What color would you call that? The ladies always know. What color would that be? Is that like Easter green? <laughs> Eggshell green? Okay. Robin's egg green. The, the wall has acquired the property of Robin's egg green because you have painted it that color. You have given the wall that quality. And so also for us, love is a quality. It is something that we that is in many ways added to us by something outside of us. It can increase, it can decrease, it can be changed. We can become loving, become angry, become all sorts of things. These qualities are added and subtracted from us and to us. Well, God doesn't have qualities. God doesn't get qualities. God is his qualities. He is what he is. He does not, that wall is possessing the quality of that green color. We can take it away. We can change that quality. In God, he does not possess qualities that can be added or subtracted. He is those things. And so once again, if you remove what it is, you, you, God ceases to be. You, you cannot remove what he is without removing himself because his qualities are identical with his essence. He's simple. He's not made up of parts. So he can't have qualities. He simply is what he is. And we as creatures... This is where it kind of, again, you divide by zero. We as creatures, in our minds, we notionally or mentally have to diversify who and what God is in our, in our comprehension. So we speak about God's attributes and we start to list different things about God. But what those attributes really are, are different ways in which we perceive and experience the single and simple perfection of God. And so his attributes are not a list of different things that are all composed together in God, but God's simple perfection that we understand, and for the sake of our understanding, we have to distinguish into various attributes. But in God, it's still simple perfection and infinity. And you say, whoa, that's, that's intense. <laughs> and it's true. The point is that God does not have qualities or possess qualities. He is what he is. And we as creatures get to experience aspects of that perfection, and we call those attributes. We attribute to God certain things in a way that fits with who and what he is. So think about the fact that that wall has greenness, but in the analogy, God would not have the greenness, God would be the greenness. We have love, but God is love. Isn't it better to be the thing than to possess a quality of the thing? So for example, if you need to get warm, which is better, to have something that was made hot or to have heat itself? You know, if someone heats something up for you and gives it to you, it's going to lose its heat. But if someone says, here's fire, <laughs> I have given you fire, 
you know, fire without fuel, let's say, a fire that just keeps burning in and of itself, you have heat itself, as opposed to something that's been made hot. And that's better. So also, if someone says to you, here, I'm going to give you this brick of pure gold, or they say, here, I've made this wooden brick and painted it with the quality of gold, perhaps even gold, true gold paint, which one is better, the one that has the quality of gold because it's been painted that, or the pure true gold itself? You'd say, I'll, I'll take the, the pure true gold itself, thank you very much. It's better. It doesn't possess those qualities. It is those things. It is gold, as opposed to being painted or given the quality of gold. So also, God, so also, God is that he is, perfectly and infinitely. He doesn't have qualities or possess qualities. He is all of those things in and of himself. Our confession of faith expresses this to us. It's in the, it's in the handout for you. It says that God is most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, most righteous, most loving, which also applies to most gracious, most merciful, most long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, most just, and most terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. Why does it add this word most? If something's the most, it can't be any more. It can't be any less. If it's any less, it's not the most. And so they're saying that these things in God are those infinite perfections that Creatures will never possess in that way because we're creatures. And so we can be holy. We can be wise. We can be loving and gracious and merciful. But like the, like the wood that is painted with gold or the wall that's painted with a color, it's something that we, that we experience as a reflection of what is in God as a perfection. And so these qualities in us are true, but they are, they are originally in God and supremely and infinitely in God Whereas in us, we participate in those things. And again, like switches, they can be turned on, they can be turned off. We can, we can grow in them, we can decrease in them, we can stop being that way, we can start being that way. Whereas in God, he is most of the, he is most those things. He is those things in a most way because it couldn't be any more, it couldn't be any less. He is perfect. And that's why it uses those words to say we're not taking those things away from God by any means we're, give, we're showing that they are in God essentially and infinitely so much more than they are in the creatures and the word most gets at that idea so what I want to do now is to use three examples love, mercy and anger to just go through the exercise of how we look at these things according to humanity and deity and then lastly, two suggestions for, for how to read the scriptures that speak of God in this way. So let's look at love, mercy, and anger in God now that we've looked at the human nature and the divine nature of which we can posit these things, or to which. First, love. Love is God who is good in and of himself pouring out his goodness on his creatures. This means that when God does good to his creatures, he is loving them. And he is not loving them because of something that he perceives that is good in them, that he has decided to react and respond to. His love has not been brought about because of something good he's perceived in his creatures, but rather his love flows from his own goodness. The, in, the infinity of his own goodness, that's where his love flows from, from his own character, his own being, his own nature. 
And so in God, God loves because God. We love because of all sorts of reasons, good or bad. God loves because God, because of himself. Love for us is when we perceive something good and we're attracted to it. We act towards it. That's an affection. And according to every definition that we could see, we take the same word, love, we remove from it the creaturely affection or passion, the interpretation and reaction and movement, and we ascribe it to God according to the infinity of his being and perfection, and we say that God in and of himself causes his creatures to experience an element or an aspect of his perfection, namely his goodness. And when God pours out his goodness on his creatures of his own absolute freeness or freedom, he is loving his creatures. God is love. We as humans love those that we perceive as good. God loves of his own goodness, pouring out his goodness on his creatures. And the scriptures tell us we love him because he first loved us. And it, and it wasn't because we were just so lovable. We were just so lovable that God couldn't help but love us. No, if, God, if God's love were an affection or a passion, and he looked down on the objects around him in his world, again, we're putting God in time and space and saying this, but if God were a creature like us, and he looked down upon the world, what would he see? Would he see goodness worthy of pouring out goodness upon? No, the, the Lord knows the heart of man, which is absolutely and thoroughly wicked. And we ourselves cannot but admit that that is the truth, that I'm not lovable. If God were looking for a reason to love me, there would be all sorts of reasons not to love me. And so God's love comes from his own goodness, and he pours, out, pours it out upon his creatures. And everyone, believers or unbelievers, can thank God and praise him for his love, his goodness to all mankind. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So that's the first example. Love according to human nature, love according to the divine nature. Love in us comes from outward objects. Love in God is in and of himself. It is who he is, and he pours it out upon his creatures. Secondly, mercy. Mercy. Mankind, men are moved to mercy when they perceive a need in something else or someone else that is like them, in some way. We participate in the suffering of someone with whom we identify on some level. And so, we have, and so we are kind to them. We are merciful towards them. There are many causes that move our hearts to be merciful towards others and to feel alongside of them, to suffer with them, and to enter into their state and to pity them. We, we are overcome by sympathy or compassion. And the, the Latin word for mercy, misericordia, or in Spanish, misericordia, means misery of the heart. Miseria, misery. Cordia, in Latin or in, in, in Spanish, I guess, you know, heart. Uh, cardiac arrest, arrest is a, a heart attack, cardio, cardiopulmonary disease, or cardio uh, exercises, you know, they're working on your heart. Misericordia. So misery of the heart is the idea of human mercy. My heart has misery with you because of your suffering, and so I will help you. That is my mercy towards you. We help those to whom we relate in their suffering. Now, there's no connection between divine being and creature being, so God cannot look down on creatures and somehow see something or someone like him that is suffering. 
And so if there's nothing in us that would connect with God in our suffering, is God incapable of having mercy? If God cannot enter into our suffering, if God cannot undergo anything or be acted upon, is mercy improper to, to say, to speak of when we talk about God? There were, there were philosophers hundreds of years ago who said yes. They said, mercy is misery of the heart. That, this cannot happen to God, therefore God cannot have mercy. And those were philosophers, they were not theologians. And whereas the theologians of the scriptures, the reformers and their, their children, theologically speaking, they said, that's, that's incorrect because all you're doing is taking human mercy and putting it on God, which of course doesn't work. If you did that, then God couldn't have love and God couldn't have any of the other affections that we'll talk about. So how then do we understand mercy to be in God? Well, insofar as God's mercy doesn't depend on all the causes of co-feeling, sympathy, and compassion, insofar as God's mercy does not depend on those causes, God is all the more free in and of himself to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. He can have mercy on anyone and everyone because he's not limited by sharing in the experience of one particular person. When we see a rock being smashed in a construction site, we feel, no, we feel no misery for it because there's no connection of our nature with that rock. But when we see a, a fellow human being suffering, we may, we may participate. But here's the sadness of human nature. We in our culture, I'm including ourselves in this, we are far more prone to be moved to mercy by pictures of puppies suffering than humans suffering. Oh, that poor dog. Why won't someone feed it and help it and care for it? But when a, a fellow human being is suffering, that's too much work for us. And so we, we do not have mercy. We have mercy on those whom we want to have mercy upon because it's ultimately good for us. And so, yes, in some cases we may truly sympathize with people and have mercy upon them. In other cases we somewhat sympathize, but we know it's going to be beneficial for us in the long run. So we help those with whom we identify and suffer for all sorts of reasons. When you take away all of those causes and reasons, then God is all the more free and able to have mercy upon anyone upon whom he will have mercy. Because his mercy is not dependent upon some connection with the being of creatures, but rather it flows, again, from his own infinite goodness. God, who is good in and of himself, helps the helpless. He helps the helpless. That's mercy, helping the helpless. In us, we help the helpless for all these reasons, for all these creaturely reasons, good or bad. In God, he helps the helpless in and of himself, of his own goodness. So you see, if you start with human mercy and try to put it on God, you're going to say God doesn't have mercy. But that's not true. God is merciful. God is perfectly merciful. And we should again be thankful for that because mercy workers, with the best of intentions and the best of motives, they get tired and overwhelmed. Mercy workers get tired and overwhelmed. They see a lot of suffering and they sometimes have to stop or take breaks. It's, it can be depressing. It can be overwhelming. This is, this is so much suffering to be around and I'm trying to help, but it, it's, it's wearisome despite their best intentions and desires. Pastors often feel this way as they, they watch over the souls of their flocks and they see their people suffering for perhaps for reasons that are not their fault, perhaps for their own choices of sin. They see all this suffering in the life of the flock that they are placed over, and it can, it's very overwhelming to a pastor's heart. 
You want to have mercy and be kind and compassionate, but sometimes it, it, it makes you almost emotionally dead, not because you want to be numb, but because you're so overwhelmed by the, the flood of suffering that comes upon you that you almost can't help but, but find a numbness at times of, it's hard to cope with all of this suffering. God is not like that. God is, God is not acted upon, and so he can have mercy upon all upon whom he will have mercy without being overwhelmed by all of the suffering of those upon whom he is having mercy. And that's the God that we need and want. We don't want the doctor who might get sick as they help us. We want the doctor who absolutely will not get sick and can attend to us in all of our suffering, in all of our needs, in all of our trials and troubles and tribulations. So if we call mercy heart misery, misericordia, God can't be merciful. But if you define it as helping the helpless, God is the most merciful because he helps those that are entirely unlike him and he helps those that no one else would help. Thirdly, anger. Anger. And this is probably the best example of the problems and the limitations of human language. We get angry. We even talk that way. I got angry. He got angry with me. Is God, if we take anger and put it in God, who is simple, infinite, and eternal, and immutable, We've said that God is simply, infinitely, eternally, immutably loving, merciful. Is God perfectly, simply, infinitely, and immutably angry? That doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. So why say that God is angry, as the scriptures so often do? They speak of God as being angry. Why? What are they communicating? Well, take away, scrub away the creaturely imperfection, get rid of the affection or passion, and think about, again, creatures and our creator. What do creatures do when they get angry? What is the action that we take when we become angry? We cause some punishment or some revenge to be poured out upon the object of our anger or our wrath. We get angry at someone and we lash out at them with words, with physical actions, with manipulation. We do something when we get angry to to cause some kind of retribution, some kind of response, some kind of justice or revenge to go back at the person with whom we are angry. And so in man... Our anger leads us to all kinds of terrible and wicked revenges. But in God, anger describes God's perfect and unstoppable justice. Those who are wicked will most certainly experience God's just vengeance poured out upon them. God will punish them. And so you can call that anger because that's what men do when they're angry. They cause some kind of vengeance to be poured out upon the object of their anger. But they do it with affection and with passion for all the wrong, generally speaking, for all the wrong reasons and in a a moment of heat. And so God is not eternally burning with anger. God is not provoked to wrath. You can't make him angry. Rather, God is perfectly and eternally and infinitely just. And so therefore, anyone who is sinful in relation to a perfectly just God can know that he will punish them 
unless they are changed, God will absolutely punish them. And so you can say God is angry with that sinner because he will punish them. He will cause vengeance to be poured out upon them. And we use the human language of anger because in anger we cause vengeance to be poured out. But we scrub it clean of its creaturely imperfection. God is not provoked to that. It is what he is, not that God is eternally angry, but God is eternally just and holy. And so he is eternally opposed to that which is unjust or unholy. And so no, God is not outside of creation, eternally burning somehow with anger and wrath. That that just doesn't make sense. God is eternally blessed. But God is eternally holy and just, and he will cause the objects of, he will cause objects of sinfulness to be uh, punished. It's, the problem of human language is that it's very hard to think about anger without passion. But it is possible. We're told in the scriptures, be angry and do not sin. There is righteous anger. There is true, just anger. I don't know if any of us has ever been justly angry. Maybe perhaps we could come up with a few instances, but the number of times we've been unjustly or sinfully angry far outweighs or outnumbers those cases. And so our experience of anger greatly changes or or prohibits us from accurately understanding God's anger. We have to carefully qualify and control and protect God's anger in a way that matches or fits with the scripture's description of him. And so now you see we've done our homework. Lesson one, we we gather many of the scripture passages, get some interpreting principles. Lesson two, we look at the human nature. Lesson three, we look at the divine nature. And now we can take things like love and mercy and anger and we put them on the creature in one way and we put them on God in another way that fits with all of these things according to God's word as he has described himself. Now, two recommendations for how to read the scriptures when they describe God in the language of human affection or passion. And we've been doing this in the past three examples, but now I'm just making it a little bit more explicit. What you want to do is to look for a divine perfection or a corresponding action. And I'll explain what what I mean by those things. Think about some of the passages that we've looked at that describe God as repenting, regretting, being grieved in his heart, and also the passages that say that God is not like a man and doesn't do those things, but rather that God does not change, that God always accomplishes what he purposes. And so how how do we read those things? Well, in the case of love and mercy, and even in anger, we've looked at how God is described in the language of human affections and passions, and we've scrubbed it clean to see God's divine perfections, the perfection of his love, the perfection of his mercy, the perfection of his anger, which we could call the perfection of his justice, because that's really what it is. So the scriptures have communicated to us a perfection of God's being in creaturely language, so that those statements are not empty. When it says God was provoked to wrath, when it says that God is angry, it's not an empty statement, it's not a false statement, it's not even misleading. It's just a perfection described in creaturely language. And now we understand what that means. God will destroy these people. God will cause vengeance to be poured out upon them. And oftentimes he does that. He causes them to be threatened so that they will change. And now since they have been changed, uh, the same 
perfection of justice that would have punished them now will justify them. We'll talk about that later in the next lesson. <clears throat> but the point is, those statements are not empty. We just have to clean them up from their creaturely imperfections so that we see a divine perfection in that language. In other words, uh, another way of putting it is anytime you read something about God, read it in a way that fits with who God is. Just like when it speaks of God with eyes, with hands, with feet, with arms, etc. Read those passages in a way that matches or fits with who and what God is, the divine nature. Secondly, look for a corresponding action. Look for a corresponding action. In some cases, the connection between the human description of God or the human language being used to describe God and God himself is in an action that humans perform and that's the language of describing that action. What I mean is this. In the case of repentance in God or provocation, God cannot change his mind and God does not grieve. And so you have to remove the passion of those statements and connect them to an action because you don't say, in God, God has repentance infinitely and perfectly and eternally. That that doesn't make sense. You're not going to say God has grief infinite and eternally. That doesn't make sense. So if it's not describing some perfection in God, it's describing some action, some action that humans take that God is being described in the language of that action. And so we used, again, the example of repentance in our first lesson to say in repentance, you stop doing something and you start doing something else. That's the action we take. God threatens, he he makes Saul king, and then he removes Saul from the kingship. He stops doing something, and he starts doing something else. Is it because in time and space God changed his mind? No, it's because God's decree that's unfolding in time and space, and us creatures, from a temporal successive perspective, we see a succession of events, and you can call it repentance because God made Saul king, and God removed Saul from the kingship. You can call that repentance because there's a connection in the action. It's not a connection to a perfection in God. A perfection of repentance doesn't make sense. Rather, it's a connection between human action. God began to do a work. He stopped the work. He undid the work. He did something different without any change in himself because he had decreed every step of those changes. God immutably decrees infinite mutations. He with a singular, simple, perfect decree, decrees all sorts of things to change as they go. And you cannot argue from those changes that God has decreed will happen, changes in God himself. No, that's, that's his decree working out in time and space, distinct from God himself. So also when God is provoked to wrath or takes vengeance, it's not because he is awoken from a state of slumber into a state of rage. He wasn't this and now he is this. No, that's the language of time and space and affection and passion. Rather, God is perfectly just. And so when he causes his creatures to experience his judgment and his vengeance, he was not causing them to experience that, but now he is causing them to experience that. So the change is in the creature in relation to God, but the change is not in God. He sometimes holds back his vengeance, he cause, which means his, the creature is not experiencing that, and then he causes the creature to experience that vengeance. The creature experiences all kinds of changes, but God is not changed in any way, shape, or form. We'll talk about this more in the next lesson because this has to do with comforting the life of a believer. Is God angry with me? Is God upset with me if he is 
not causing me to experience the fullness of his love right now? Well, God's not changed. He's changing you. We'll get there. God has many purposes, and his ways are not our ways. He is so far beyond us. Isn't that true? But you see, all of these things are cases where creatures in time and space are experiencing the outworking of God's eternal decree. We see God threaten and relent. We see God do one thing, then a different or opposite thing. And all sorts of different effects are being brought about in time and space. But is God along for the ride? Is God along for the ride of time and space and the, and the unfolding of his decree? Is the divine nature undergoing or becoming along with time and, and history? Well, certainly not. The infinite is not trapped in time, going through succession and mutation, because God is simple, he is infinite, he is eternal, he is immutable, and he is impassable. And brothers and sisters, we praise him and thank him for that reality, that God's not along for the ride like us. Love and mercy and anger in God are not passions or affections brought about by us or, or pushed upon God by us, but rather they are eternal and infinite perfections in our God, in his essence, infinitely, eternally, and immutably so. And as we will see in our final lesson, this becomes the very foundation of our own personal hope as well as the gospel message that we preach to the nations of the world. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we confess that many of the things that we have said today we do not comprehend fully, but we thank you that you have revealed them to us truly. And so we know your love and we know your mercy and we know your anger, your perfect justice. And we ask that you would help us to to deepen our understanding so that, again, we might praise you with hearts and minds that are more informed. We ask that we might serve you with hearts and minds that are more informed, that we might see your majesty and your greatness in contrast to us creatures. And yet we see at the same time that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Our Father in heaven, how we how we thank you for creating us as we are and how we thank you that you are not like us. How we praise you and thank you for your infinite and perfect and essential love. We thank you that you are love and we thank you that you have loved us in and through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.